Welcome back, everybody, to the Deep Dive Podcast. Uh, Colin, God is dead, and we have killed him. Thanks for the good news, Nietzsche. Wow. <laughs> or Nietzsche. I, just, I don't know how to pronounce Nietzsche properly. Nietzsche. Nietzsche? 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 I, you know what? I don't know either, probably. Okay. This is, I, it's a good sign, apparently, they say, when you don't know how to pronounce a name because it means that you've read it and you didn't hear it from somewhere else. Ah, so, <laughs> that's good. So I probably don't pronounce his name that, uh, well at all. But no, what a grim way to begin a podcast indeed. Yes. But uh, today we'd like to talk about all things atheism following... A, uh, our interview, my interview, I suppose you were away that that week. Yeah, but my got, interview with David Dean. I, on I got Friedrich the. Uh, I got no. I didn't get the COVID bug. My wife got the COVID bug that week or something like that. That's right. To, yeah. And so you were unfortunately not here for that conversation. But David and I had this wonderful conversation about Friedrich Nietzsche, the the German um, philosopher, philologist, and uh, and basically happy go lucky fellow. I have a really too. happy dude. Yes. Really, just mm, man, just warms your heart if you really jokes. just want to uplifting read yes. go ahead and read the the antichrist or the <laughs> <laughs> thus spoke Zarathustra. um uh and and what david and i kind of came out of that podcast with was this first of all the conclusion that nietzsche reaches to which is that without god there is nothing mm. but secondly uh, and i really liked this as a practical application for christians is that uh there's this destruct, uh, 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 yeah, deconstructive, I think is the word I'm looking for, a deconstructive element in evangelism. And why would we talk about atheism, Colin? Why would a Christian podcast want to talk all about atheism? Precisely because it's where so much of our culture lives, and it's important to understand its context and its sort of history throughout Christianity in order to uh, uh, argue with it, to, uh, to either oppose it or to kind of work with it, let's say, in order to uh, have an open conversation with people who maybe don't share the faith that we do. So I think it's right. important to yeah. explore. F uh, famed missiologist Leslie Newbigin mm. wrote a lot about that, about we need to stop seeing the culture that we're in as North American, you know, Western European uh, Christians as sort of home and start seeing it as a mission field. There, right. You know, there's a there's a chasm has grown in many ways between those raised in the church and those who are more and more post-Christian, which is one of the things that I know we've uh, talked about a lot already. And so, so we need to kind of go out, as you say, and, and really analyze and deconstruct how do other people think so that we can, again, wrestle with them that way. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when, you know, again, we talked about this with David Dean, but when Paul argued in the Areopagus, he was arguing against people by taking what they already believed and and giving the Christian message within that context. Um, and so we are in a mission field in that sense. And we are, you know, part of, when we started this podcast, we had said, these, this is going to be conversations in theology for a post-Christian age, yeah. was how we sort of initiated it. Um in a way, we don't need to continue to say it because it's almost redundant. All yeah. the conversations we're going to have are in a post-Christian age. Absolutely. And I think this is the this is the context in which most people find themselves. Is they you know especially for uh, members of our church, for people of faith, believers, they constantly have conversations with people where it's just like you're running up a brick wall, running up against a brick wall. You can't you can't get anywhere with these people, and you feel like you're trying all these things, and you're arguing from either the you know, the historical relevance of the resurrection or something like that, or you're trying to give reasons. To, and and most people 
they just can't be argued into the faith. It's not about that. So today, I want to talk about atheism in its in its Christian context, sort of the history of atheism within the church. And then I want to get into this fellow named Charles Taylor. He wrote a massive book called A Secular Age. It was a landmark text. Yeah, hugely influential. Yeah, 900 pages. I mean, it's this massive thing, which uh, if you don't want to read that, but you're interested in this, I highly recommend a book by a guy named James K.A. Smith called How Not to Be Secular. And it is a sort of condensed version of Taylor's arguments. But but this book is really important for a, a sort of a genealogical study of 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 the ways in which people went from a sort of context of religiosity pervading everything to no longer really believing anything at all. If you really think about our history as human beings, Taylor is asking the question, why was it 500 years ago that everybody believed in God and now seemingly nobody does, right? It's as simple as that. What are the things that managed to, to make that happen? So those are some of the things I'd like to explore today on The Deep Dive. Excellent. Again, sometimes we can just accept the world we're in and not take the time to just think about how did we get here mm -hmm. um, and how did we go from from the the place we were at. I mean, I remember back when email was a novel thing and it was just first came out. I right. I would get certain friends of mine who would send these chain emails. You know, I think this <laughs> yeah. is more of a social media thing now. And I'm like send this on, on to so and so, otherwise yeah. your mother's gonna die in a plane and, crash or something and i i remember uh my sister older sister once sent me uh some email claiming about how much better the 50s were to what life is nowadays i right. think that nowadays at the time was like i don't know the 90s right uh so i'm dating myself there but um it's interesting how we will sometimes like to say there was a time at one point where things were good Mm -hmm. And now things are terrible. And I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> Maybe you need to edit that out. <laughs> uh, no, that's fine. I think I, uh, I think I think you're right. I think there was, you know, people think in those terms of, uh, you know, back in the day, everything was one way. And oh, the good old days. And, and, and this can be a critique, actually, against Taylor as we get into him. I'm not trying to say that. You know, Charles Taylor, A Secular Age is a is a wonderfully helpful book, but I don't necessarily think he's right about all things. So even that question of why 500 years ago, say, did everybody believe in God and now nobody does, we have to ask ourselves, is that really the case? Yes. I mean, is that even really true to our experience? In one sense, you could argue that today is a more religious age than it ever has been. And in one sense, Taylor is also arguing what I think is a is a particularly Western view. Look at world religion. Look at across, the, you know, Africa is booming right now with religious growth in terms of people coming to faith, especially the Christian faith. So but the global south doesn't count. Right. Well, exactly. Right. And that, and that's a critique. I mean, Taylor was writing this in 2007. And, and as shameful as it is to say, that wasn't really as much of a concern for people back and even that long ago. It doesn't seem long at all. Um, uh, so that's been a part of the critique of his his work. But I still think it's worth looking at. As we talk about atheism, though, in the church, I, uh, let me begin with something to, to frame this. And this is, a, this is a little story I used to tell, and I, I would preach it sometimes in sermons, and uh, I'll say that my youth got it right away, but some of the adults never did. But So in, in 63 BC, Pompeii, the great Roman, uh, you know, great is... <laughs> in quotations, depending how you yes. look at great, okay? Historians <laughs> call him great. You know, a ruthless killer. Anyway, he sacks Jerusalem in 63 AD. 
or B, BC, sorry. And uh, he, he, after kind of laying bare the land there, he gets to the temple. And the priests say, you're not allowed to enter the temple. And Pompey goes, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm moving in here. So Rome has taken over. And he walks inside the temple. He pushes the priest aside and he makes it into the Holy, Holy, uh, Holy of Holies. And our history says that Pompey was absolutely floored. And I want to know if you can tell me why you think he was so shocked when he entered the Holy of Holies. I have an idea, but I, I what hope is I'm it? Not what is it that Pompey? What is it? It's not even a joke. It's just well, the way no, they. Okay, what is sorry. it that Pompey saw that shocked him so much? Nothing. That's right. Yeah. Nothing. It, maybe it is more obvious, but I've had some people be stumped on that. No, but, I think I've heard that before. But the <laughs> point is, Pompey is absolutely dumbfounded by the fact that within the sacred most sacred space within the Israelite community, there is nothing. There is no representation of anything. There is no idol. There is no gold statue. You have the ark, right? You have the menorah that's, that's burning, but those are not. Is the ark there? Yeah. The ark is not in 60. Sorry. The ark is not there in 63 uh, in BC, but I mean, I'm just talking about the things that would have been in the Holy of Holies. There's still no representation of a God. And, it's for this reason that when we talk about atheism in Christian history, I think it's important to recognize from the start that Christians are in many ways the first atheists. Rome thought of Christians as atheists. It's actually one of the first times the terminology of atheism, A without theism, is used. And so there's a sense in which Christians need to recognize uh, as we evangelize even today, that perhaps what we're talking about to non-believers is not the thing that non-believers think it is. <laughs> this frustrates me about modern apologetics and the way that we get into debates with people about the existence of God. And rarely ever in those debates does anyone bother to talk about who is God? <laughs> yes. What is the identity of the God you're referring to? You think, you know, we're just debating with somebody about and- what they believe is what I believe. I don't yeah. think so. I don't, I've never met an atheist who believed in a God that I, or that who didn't believe in a God that I did. Right. <laughs> right. I um, reject it too. And I think, I think what you're saying as well speaks to where God is located within a culture or within a society, because if Christians are the first atheists, m- many of our listeners are probably going to be like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. But it makes sense within the culture of that day, because Christians, of course, the earliest Christians only believed in the God of the Bible and and Jesus as his human representation on earth, right? Mm-hmm. And so they didn't believe in the in the public, you know, acno- publicly acknowledged, officially acknowledged gods, uh, pantheon of gods that Rome officially That's accepted, right. worshipped, um, including the emperor. Mm-hmm. And 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 Christians said absolutely not to any of that. That's right. Only Jesus is Lord. There's only one God, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they didn't, and they completely rejected anything else. And so I think that's important for framing the way in which what do we think religion is? What do we think gods are? You know, again, we've been talking about mythology and all of that stuff. Uh, we even mentioned Marvel comics as sort of being cultural mythology. Mm. Um, can those things be included under the heading religion? What does it mean to be religious? And uh, 
even the term religion, I think would be something difficult to explain to a pre-modern person. Because when we think of religion, we think of, I think, a, a set of dogmas or a set of doctrines that one either adheres to or doesn't. Something that is either, you know, it's available to them as a choice that I can be a part of this or I can remove it. Mm. It's not really what religion ever meant. Religio, the word in Latin, refers to binding together. And it referred mainly to something that nobody has or doesn't have, but a sort of quality you have more or less of. Mm. Um, religious things pervaded the world before modernity is part of the argument, at least that, that, that certainly Charles Taylor is going to make. But I think that we can, at least we can see a little bit of that. So perhaps what you're saying is that religion, or excuse me, modernity, our, our, the, the secular age as it is formed in our society, pushes what you're describing to some degree to the side and calls that religion. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, when you saw the the new atheists, for instance, get on the scene, they had this whole diatribe against religion itself, as though religion poisons everything. That was their sort of tagline. Yes. But it works under the assumption that religion is something that we can just remove. It works under the the, the impression that that religion is this sort of isolated private thing that we can do away with. And then what's left is, is, well, the hobbies that we have and art and poetry and all of these things. So I, I started this podcast by quoting Nietzsche and God is dead and we have killed him. Um, we are in what typically people refer to as the postmodern age. Now, postmodernity is a, is a large sort of umbrella term. But before even getting into a definition of what that is, most philosophers agree that all of postmodernity is a long footnote to Nietzsche. So Nietzsche is sort of the herald of bringing in this new age of, of saying God, as we have once previously understood him, is no longer possible. And this is due to a whole bunch of changes that we should probably talk about. But the belief in God that used to sort of just pervade all of reality. This is what, in Charles Taylor's book, he refers to it as enchantment. Mm. It's a sort of enchanted way in which we were just conditioned. We, we existed in the world. And another term Taylor uses is the social imaginary. Our social imaginations just, just took for granted that, that God or gods were sort of things that could influence creation and, and do certain things. And there's a whole bunch of shifts that take place uh, over the course of history that lead to this proclamation of Nietzsche to say the God that was once totally everywhere pervasive in our reality is no longer believable by modern man. This wasn't something that he was saying as like, this is my opinion on it and it's a choice. He was saying, this is the inevitable conclusion of our history. The, God the, is dead and we have killed him. Yeah, and it modernity is modernity project brings to an end. That's right. That, all and, of that. And so to your and question or to your point that. about pushing, pushing the religious to the side, um, this is precisely what is happening. Let's say post Nietzsche is that what we are now doing is we are trying to move forward forward with the nihilistic project of imagining what the world is like without God. And what ends up happening is something has to run in to fill that void. 
something has to run in to fill the the sort of absence that's left. And this is precisely, again, where Nietzsche was so important is what he said was, when you get rid of God, you're not just getting rid of uh, some guy in the sky. You're getting rid of the whole basis for meaning that we have constructed in our culture. Mm. And without it, uh, what games will we invent was what he said, right? I mean, this is a terrifying reality for Nietzsche. And in many ways, Nietzsche, again, heralds forth the, the, he, he heralds forth the bloodshed of the 20th century, the Stalinist regime, okay? He is saying in a godless world, uh, power dynamics are going to take control of everything because you're going to have to reinvent new ways of meaning. So then you have the existentialists come out, for instance, and they're trying to say meaning is something you invent yourself, right? Uh, this is what Dawkins would say. This is what the new atheists had said, is that meaning is something that we, we have to not only create ourselves, but even what they would argue is that by you saying that there's meaning beyond what is, it's actually a selfish view of religion, that it even tries to seek something beyond, okay? But to the argument of... of you know, what's bringing forth this change or what's so uh, bad about it from a Christian perspective is that without this grounding, without this framework, without what's called a teleology, a sort of reaching toward an end goal of something that frames how we exist and have meaning, uh, we're not left with anything that we can run on, you know? We, our ethics have to crumble with it. Uh, and yet many atheists are in kind of denial about that, right? Oh, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. You don't need God to be good. What I think, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think what they're failing to recognize is the amount of uh, how much Christianity itself, I'll say even Judeo-Christian ethics, have already made their way through our cultural fabric such that you already are a Christian. In the Dawkins, for instance, is just a Christian atheist, right? In the sense that he believes in all the virtues that were handed to him by a Christian faith, um, but rejects the sort of God piece behind it, which is that even really an option? Yeah. And this is where you go back to what I'm just saying about Christian atheism or the idea that in the beginning, Christians already are pointed out as being atheists. Our understanding of God is one that can't just be simply removed as though God is some thing we point to in the world. Um, so Dawkins and, and that whole ilk, his whole ilk of like, you know, you, you, we, I just believe in one less God than you do. No, by definition, the God of Christianity is not a thing, is not a tangible reality, is not like you have 100 things and then God comes in the room and now you have 101 thing. That's right. right? It, is, it is not that. It is a beyond a, a transcendental equality that you can't point to it and just remove it. Um, yeah. As Peter Rollins, Christian theologian, yeah. philosopher, whatever you want to call him, um, says, God does not exist in the sense of, from a modernist point of view, something exists if I can see it and touch mm -hmm. it and you know, prove on some sort of empirical scientific method that it's there. God's beyond that. He's not an object to put under a microscope or see in a telescope or or do experiments on. That's God right. is beyond in that sense. There was this guy named uh, William Plaker, and he wrote a book that was hugely pivotal for me uh, called The Domestication of Transcendence. Mm. And basically one of his arguments there is that he says the reason why atheism 
became so popular, let's say, or secularism sprung forth, uh, is precisely because we tried thinking of God in terms that we could describe. We put God under a microscope and we treated him as the end of a rationalistic argument. Mm. And the second we did that, he's no longer God. Right. He's now an object of our desire. He's now a projection of ours. He's no longer the unattainable I am of scripture. Okay. He is now this, he is now this domesticated transcendence yes. that therefore is completely impotent. Sounds a lot like what we've been said in the past episodes about certain views of uh, more mainline denominations and how they, you know, we talked more specifically in that context about the Bible, but that the implication then is that if you're, if you're domesticating the Bible, you're also domesticating God. You're putting God, as you say, in this smaller vein, and he's not the big God that he is. Mm-hmm. He's, he's something rather he's, he's something impotent, as much you different. And this is where Christians, by the way, don't end up saying that God is so far beyond we can't say anything about him, but that's precisely why Revelation, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the Logos, becomes the, becomes the way forward for Christians to speak in any tangible way. Yeah. Can I can I back us up for a moment? Please I've do. just got an idea of of how to describe in some ways just to restate what we what we're talking about so far. So on one level we're talking about in in a pre-modern age, you know, in the time of the of the Bible, the time of the Middle Ages, there's not necessarily a concept of the world that the natural and the supernatural are two different things. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's just all God's fairies, angels, and hills, plants, forests. It's all the natural world, This what we call now the natural and the supernatural. It's all just yeah. what it is. And then the modern modernity comes along and it separates the two. It says, this is natural. This is supernatural. We're going to push the supernatural out and focus on the, the natural. Mm-hmm. And then Nietzsche comes along to sort of say, to sort of interpret in many ways what the modernist movement was doing in the first place. And he says, actually, what you're doing, you're not just separating the natural from the supernatural. You're actually saying there is no supernatural. And now we're left just in this black gulf mm-hmm. of, of missing that enchantment, as, as Taylor put it. Am I, is that a, yeah, a fairly good I think summary? That's, yeah, in, in many ways, that's sort of the narrative. The question is, why did that happen? Mm, what is it good... that sparked that transition, right? And this is where Taylor, I think, is hugely important for us in terms of understanding the, the sort of story of how does modernity rise. Now, Taylor, Taylor has kind of a three-pronged approach to secular and what we even mean by that. And and the first two kind of relate to this idea that secular is just work that you do that has nothing to do with the religious or activities that don't engage with anything quote unquote spiritual. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of like lay people activities. Um, and I, I, I can't really go into the definitions of them too well, but his point is he's really dealing with this third kind of secular, which is when in modernity, uh, uh, religion becomes an option for people. It, where before it used to be, as you said, it was just this sort of pervasive reality. There's no break That's between the natural and the supernatural. Now religion is suddenly a choice people can make. I can choose to live my life in this way or I can choose to live this way. Right. Not only can I be a Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, or Muslim, I can also reject all of those. And as a matter of fact, it encourages me to reject all of those because I have the option. And if these are all just options, what makes any one more true than the other? Yes. So this is a, this is a constant problem uh, for, for the modern mind. 
But again, what, uh, what causes all of this? And this is what uh, Taylor is sort of driving at, is what were the conditions of belief that made these things change? Now, we can get as complicated as you want here because it is, this is where some really high theology starts to happen, and I don't want to confuse too many people. But one of the linchpin kind of moments happens during the scholastic period, a high medieval period. Oh, interesting. So when you think of people like Thomas Aquinas, right. Thomas Aquinas is a scholastic figure. He's the king of the scholastics. He's the king of the scholastics. And yeah. what is Thomas Aquinas's sort of, you know, way of doing theology is really structured. He's pointing out, he, he does this steel man thing, right, where he takes objections to what he's about to say and makes them as airtight as possible and then knocks it down, right? So you know, even belief in God and why you should, you know, the debate about belief in God. He says, here are the reasons, five reasons why you shouldn't believe in God and then objections to those, right? Yes. And that's his way of arguing. Um, you start at this time to get into uh, big discussions about language and how it's used. And Taylor describes what's about to happen here as a zigzag pattern where, where theologians wanted to move in one direction that ended up, not going in the direction they wanted it to. So this is as simple as I can try and explain this, and, and hopefully I can do an adequate job. You had people like John Duns Scotus, William of Ockham, okay? They're kind of around the same time. The they're writing about, these are the scholastic figures. And they're writing about how we talk and relate to our understanding of God. God is the transcendental. He is beyond us. But as you said, there's no real break with the natural, nature-grace distinction isn't clear-cut, right? For God sure. must have, this is the Augustinian paradox, we can only know about God because God must have spoken to us in some way already before, okay? So uh, they're trying to come up with ways of understanding God in his transcendence. And one of the things that Scotus does, which he sees as a very positive move, is he wants to talk about the sovereignty of God and his ultimate kingship as being ultimate, as being so high above the natural order, so much so that it, it, it can't be expressed almost in the same language. Um, and what ends up as a result of that is that now you can talk about nature completely apart and separate from this God who is transcendental. Does that make sense? It does. So this is, now, there's a lot of criticisms about this argument. It was one of the main arguments used by a guy named John Milbank and, and the movement called Radical Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of narrative of decline that, you know, what, do all things just fall apart with John Dunn Scotus? It's not really what's being said, but Scotus is a good example of where the language started to shift. And the argument is that people like Scotus, by making this argument about the sovereignty of God being so far beyond uh, our natural scope of things that, that we can hardly even talk about him, uh, opens a cavern for the secular to take place. Mm. So it opens this place for all of a sudden there to be a world that can be imagined without God explaining it. Sounds like the seed of deism. Yeah, well, and that's where you get, like, deism kind of follows pretty closely after. I mean, yeah. closely in the sense of maybe a few hundred years, but this is yeah. a large history. So deism, just for our listeners, is the belief that there is a God, but he's, like, so far removed from things that... 
Yeah. He's a, not a non-issue. You know, we typically ascribe deism to the founding fathers of, of uh, America, for instance, yep. right? The United States, where a lot of them were deists, although not all of them were, and that's actually kind of a myth. We just but, alienated all our Southern fundamentalist um, <laughs> uh, Christian followers again. Well, you know, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry? Yeah, there's no not way they got to this point in the podcast. Anyway, <laughs> no, <so>. That's true. <laughs> um, so deism, you know, and we also attribute people like David Hume, the philosopher with deism, that sort of, you know, God is, uh, he he might have wound up the clock and set it in motion, but then he's pretty well hands off. So yeah. deism says that there's, you know, there maybe is a God, but he's not really involved in his project, so to speak, right? Yeah. Which is opposed to the Christian way of thinking. Yeah. Um, so this is a major turning point with uh, the rise of secular modernity, that we have developed a language, basically, that, can, that tries to make sense of the world without any reference to deity. Yes. Uh, and Taylor's argument in a secular age is that once that was just impossible to do. You could never understand the world apart from, it's too, too maybe specific to say God, but the transcendental, mm. the idea that things were sort of beyond you. And Taylor, so, Taylor puts these in terms, I'll just say, that the terms he uses are the enchanted self and then the disenchanted or buffered self. So the enchanted self... Buffered self as in, you know, when your YouTube uh, video it just <laughs> won't play, it just kind of, you keep seeing a little circle. More, uh, more, more in the sense of buffered mm. as in like there's a wall up in which, in which it, it repels things from just acting on it. So there's a... It's a body-mind dualism. It follows largely, actually. Again, you can look at the philosophy of somebody like Descartes, where all of a sudden there's a mind and a body, and you know these are two distinct I things. I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am, is a, is a component of this, where what he's saying is the enchanted self was you were a porous self. The world acted upon you mm. because you thought of the world in terms of a spirituality. When you go into the forest at night, it... There are spirits lurking in there, yes. right? You, Don't we, go into a we circle gotta, of mushrooms. We have to understand this when we're reading theology. I mean, when you're reading people like even Martin Luther, who's you know in the in the 16th century, uh, I, I heard it once described like if you walk home at night and you're not worried you're going to get possessed by a demon, you just don't inhabit the same world as these people. That's right. Right. That's a diff that's a huge difference. So the world to them is always acting upon them in spiritual ways. Spirituality pervades everything. In the the rise of modernity, we have this body-mind dualism where the individual now sees their mind as an isolated thing that can, that can take these bits of information and assess it and choose whether or not it wants it. to. So the, the, it's no longer a porous self. It's no longer being acted upon. It's, it's deciding upon whether or not it wants mm. to acknowledge those things as real. I, I feel like we're kind of, again, please forgive me if I'm, if I'm flogging a dead horse, but... I feel like again the similar similar themes to when we were talking about the Bible that you know the way we're viewing things as a whole with God in secularism there's a connection to that way of reading the Bible as if the Bible is a dead body to be autopsied right right just a very similar way of couching yourself it's connected to yes. modernity in exactly that yeah. way right why would why would the bible function as being something that is just about information to be put under a microscope that was not the way the bible was previously read by let's say the early church right mm -hmm. it was a much more living and active text That's in, a, right. in a true sense of the word you couldn't just read it once and then oh i got the information i don't need to revisit it right mm -hmm. 
God is speaking in this, and, and that gets into a whole bunch of stuff there. So I think another factor here is, so, so not only has the, the late Middle Ages and the scholastics, as you say, created now language in which the secular age can step into, but I think there's also a match lit historically in which was like a, a negative, and we don't talk about this enough, I think, as Protestants, um, and a, a real negative um, uh, repercussion of the Reformation mm-hmm. is secularism in many ways. Absolutely. Uh, why did that? Why did that come about? You know, uh, what are some of your thoughts there? The Reformation, I think, in many ways, as Protestants, we have to decide whether this is something to celebrate or to lament. And I think that I'm on the side of it's a lament because Absolutely. it's a major fracture and a splinter in the church that, I, in many ways, I wish never happened. Um, it might have been necessary in one sense. We have to remember also in the Reformation that Luther is not, he's looking to reform. He's not looking to start his own church. Yes. He, is, he is banished from Rome yeah. for holding what he holds. So there's, um, there's some, some blame, if it's fair to say, on both sides, for, you know, for the, the Reformation. I don't, I don't think the Roman Catholic Church was looking to sure. fracture, and, and Luther and some of the other reformers were not looking to fracture. They were looking to reform. That's why they were Absolutely. called reformers. But, but to, the, to my point, though, about why I, why I would even raise that is because what the Reformation ends up doing is, is it, it, you lose a lot of trust in the authority of what Scripture, what, what religion in general, is trying to teach anybody if it can't hold together. Yes. And so the fact that we are fractious in our own identity um, as Christians today, we have like, there are thousands of Protestant sects. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the main reasons why the Roman Catholic church has a, you know, that's their kind of like told you, yeah. you know, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't agree. I'm not a Roman Catholic, but not entirely, but, but it's still a criticism. But there to is, be yeah, exactly. There is something to be said of the fact that it's like, if we have all of these differing beliefs and, and we can't agree with each other and you have Wesleyans and Baptists and Mennonites and, and whatever, yeah. then, then all of a sudden uh, the Reformation is this catalyst toward, well, then why, why take any of this into consideration? The, yeah. the Reformation leads, so getting our dates correct here, the Reformation, which is in 1517, is when the 95 theses are, are nailed to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral by Luther. Um, it leads inevitably to the Enlightenment project. And the Enlightenment yes. is a huge turning point that I think is important to understand because the enlightenment is seen as the scientific revolution, all of, you know, so all of that comes with it. And that is, is another reason why you could talk about maybe a turn away from religiosity because all of a sudden we have trust in this scientific process that really is beneficial for us. I mean, it gave you your big screen TV and gave you a cell phone. So before we go there, we, we, we want to talk about, um, just the fact, the bloodshed of it as well, I think we want to mention. I mean, the fractiousness of it takes away from the authority of the church as as an organization that has anything good to say. But, but like, like I, in my, all of my presentations of the Reformation, uh, until I actually started reading a lot of ch- church history myself, it's, you know, Martin Luther, oh, good Martin Luther, he stood up against corruption in the church and they kicked him out. Terrible Catholics. God bless Catholics. I'm just saying this is yeah, what that's I was told. the narrative you were giving. And and then we lived happily ever after. They're, now there were Lutherans, and then and then the 
Mart, uh, Martin Calvin, uh, John Calvin, <laughs> and you know, the, and the Reformed people came up in the Netherlands and Germany and stuff, and yeah. and the Church of England, and on and on, and it was just a happy, happy breaking happy from the yeah. from the the Catholics because they just were so corrupt and had lost their way, and and yeah. and that's it. It's but that's what, not it. No, it's not at all. Because yeah. because there was major wars and conflicts yeah. that happened across. If you, go, uh, if you go read about the Bartholomew's Day Massacre, it's I mean mm. like that was where a, a Roman Catholic and a Protestant actually got married, and it sparked uh, a, a it sparked bloodshed that I think eventually led to like five million deaths. Like it's incredible, yeah, it's crazy. So it's uh, of course this is one of the reasons why. In modernity, one of the questions that everybody has or, or one of the criticisms that everybody seems to have is, I don't want to be a part of any religion because it's nothing but fractious and it creates war. That's now, right. I argue from the total other standpoint, this goes all the way back to atheism in the church and its original, the way that Judeo-Christian understanding of the world uh, it shapes us, is that I actually would argue that Religion doesn't cause war. War causes religion. Mm. And this is uh, that's a deep insight to get into at some point. That comes from, for me, from uh, the philosopher René Girard. Again, somebody I mention all the time. Um, but You've got a man crush on René Girard. Just he, well, minutes. he's always in the background. We're going to do a podcast <laughs> on René Girard soon. But, um, but, you know, Girard comes up with the idea that essentially religious order is the very thing that keeps things in harmony. We're, mm. It's not that we're not just initially religious. Yeah. We are initially violent. <laughs> okay. The Bible is clear about this. Yeah, absolutely. They were what, violent what, continuously in the flood. The narrative. first time right. sin is mentioned right. is in the context of Cain's murder of Abel. And so religion is actually the, the binding together, the religio that keeps us unified rather than trying to kill each other. But the fractious nature of human beings in general, our want to move to violent recourse, uh, has led many, many to unbelief. Because why, can, why would you ever trust this sort of thing if it can't make up its own mind? I mean, it's one of the reasons why the Anglican Church arises as the via media, because the Anglican Church is kind of that halfway going like, we are Protestant, but we are a continuation of Rome. We're trying to say, like, st this is Queen Elizabeth going, like, stop. Everyone thinks the Anglican Church sort of begins with Henry VIII. And, yeah, it has its some degree, nascent but... beginnings there. But it's Elizabeth who really goes, no, we need to find a way to unify also. And, and that's a big part of the history with it. So uh, this is one of the reasons why I just don't blame atheists for their, for their large suspicion. Yeah. And we need to receive that, right? I mean, there's yeah. so much in Christian circles. If you know, if somebody podcasts, somebody sermons where where Christians are when, if they're going to talk about humanism, secularism, atheism, it's an attack. It's yeah. this is these jerks, these foolish people, these sinful people, and we need to recognize we owe we owe some some amends to the world on yeah. this level. Um, if we had had our act together, you know, and all our argument about what the Bible means and what Christianity should be all about, mm -hmm. if we had remembered what Jesus said in the first place, and we, I know we talked about this in a recent podcast about uh, violence and everything, but I mean, if we were genuinely listening to Jesus, all of those wars and, and fractiousness would not have happened in the first place. Yeah. And I'm not blaming Catholics, I'm not blaming Protestants, I'm just saying Christians in general, we mess yeah. up because we're part of the problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something we have, we need to embrace and not try and run away from. I think one of the common refrains from Christians is more so to say like, well, that's not real Christianity. It is though. It's part yes. of our history. It's part of the story that that has shaped us and we're complicit in, in a lot of it. Yeah. And so that is, that's one of the reasons why religion has been framed as such. Um, uh, but that is also, that's just one of many contexts that make it difficult, I think, for atheists to become believers. So you have the one side that says this organizational principle of it, I don't have any trust. And that's why I wanted to say the Reformation moves to the Enlightenment, because the yes. Enlightenment is largely defined not just by a scientific revolution. If I were to define the Enlightenment by one thing, it would be a distrust of authority. I mean, the, the Enlightenment is sparked... Uh, and, and to give dates, just so people are aware, I mean, the, the Enlightenment is typically dated around 1650. That coincides with the death of René Descartes. That's not a mistake, but that might be giving too much credit to René Descartes. But, <laughs> uh, but the point is, is, you know, around 1650 to 1750, let's say that 100-year span is sort of the age of Enlightenment, then you have the post-Enlightenment. The Enlightenment begins as a project that is overthrowing monarchy, that is saying the, 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 the kings who are divinely ordained to be in these positions have led us to starvation. I mean, the French Revolution of 1789 is the most, it's one of the largest turning points in our history, period. And it's all because of the Reformation that that is actually made yes. possible. But and, and again, extremely shaped by the Enlightenment, because what do they do? They dismantle the church. It they is the dismantle the monarchy. That is the enlightenment. You know, it absolutely. is like, yeah, let, yes. let's tear down the these, sharp these things. Point of the spear of And that has to do with this distrust in its authority. So the abuse yes. of the authority of the church leads people immediately to this atheistic project. Yeah. What are we going to base our authority of our society on? If it, you know, we were listening to these Christians for a while. Clearly they have issues. Yeah. We need to find another source and Science, in some ways, becomes part of it, but more maybe reason as a whole, would you say? Uh, I, definitely, a reason with a capital R, right? I mean, yes. this isn't just... Science, science describes a very specific uh, sort of uh, practice, Subset, right? And in, yeah. of inductive reasoning of like, okay, we're going to actually try and experiment using experimentation to get our knowledge. So there's a difference between also what science is and then science with a capital S also people using that as, you know, scientism, which you yes. see today of like people just thinking that science can answer all our questions. It cannot. Yeah. You need the religious fabric to kind of bring meaning to this. Yeah. If you want to kind of talk about a religious aspect of secularism, if that's, yeah. if that's not an oxymoron, scientism, I think is it. I mean, mm -hmm. their, their belief in capital T truth. Yeah. Is, is scientism. That's so I think where, this, if, we're gonna, if we're going to talk about atheism in our present context and why it's important to recognize it as, as we evangelize, I think this is one of the main reasons why, is that if we define religion not as something that is an option that you can kind of pick or choose, but as something that just pervades, it's, it's a part of our anthropology. It's a part of what it is to be human, is to have a sort of religious component. And as a Christian, you sort of have to believe that because our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God, right? So the idea that finding communion with God is our sort of teleology, it's mm. our end game, um, means that no human being can be without that component in some, some way or another. All human beings are participating in some kind of religious 
element in their lives and how they express it just might be different. I always think yeah. this is funny when I, you know, if I talk to somebody who's like, oh, I'm not religious. And it's like, you're standing in line for a Star Wars movie. You're totally religious. <laughs> you're just, your religion, it might just be something else. And you might think it's more innocuous. Like you might not, you might not think you're basing your whole life around it, but part of what's being said in these movies or something, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, but is, I think it's a good example. It's your highest aim. And yeah. highest aim is, is another way of just talking about what religion is. So what, do you, what grounds everything? And this is why it's different than an ideology and why we need religion, in my opinion, is because ideology is a parasite on religion. Ideology is, is taking elements of religion but then putting it in a neat package that you can isolate, whereas religion has to be the grounding it's open it's open in a sense that it never ends you you're constantly it's the word i like to use it, it's a technical term is asymptotic it constantly reaching toward a apex a goal that never it's never attained in this life that's so a five dollar word can you say it again yeah so discipleship is asymptotic <sighs> It's a mathematical term. It just simply means that the line is constantly reaching its end point and it just will never get there. It just constantly moves into further degrees of like That's good. minimalism, right? How do okay, you well, well, say it one more time. I really like that word. Asymptotic. Oh, yeah, so good. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It does. Asymptotic. <laughs> so, so religion Did is, I say it right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Asymptotic. Okay, <laughs> go uh, podcast listeners, deep dive people. <laughs> go to your coworkers, your family members and say... Um, you know, I think that the Christian life is truly asymptotic. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> they will think you're so smart. Um, or just being a pompous a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> or just being pompous. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, so uh, uh, religion, when defined in that way, means that it's something that we're all moving in and out of. Mm. And now, I could sound very condescending here, but in this sense is where I kind of say, like, I don't actually believe in true atheism. I don't believe it's possible. Mm. I don't believe anyone can actually behave in such a way that, and it's, or perhaps a better way of saying it, if I'm giving credit to the atheists and saying, like, all right, I'll respect that you really believe that you just don't believe anything, that it's this. See, because the atheist defines themselves as, like, they're, they're, they're a non-belief. So they actually don't even like, some of them don't even like the term atheist because they're like, there's no word for me not believing in Santa Claus. So why is there no belief, right? Why is there a word for me not believing in God? To argue that is to fundamentally miss the point of what any good Christian theologian should have been able to tell you is, yeah. is what the faith is, is that you're not, we're not talking about Santa Claus. We're not talking about some ideal. Yeah, we're it talking also about, reveals the sheer jerkiness that is inherent in many atheists. Yeah, true. But, but I will get, here's where, here's where I'll extend the olive branch though, is that when I've explained this to an atheist, their constant rebuttal is one, you don't believe what most Christians believe then, which is, probably true but not as true as they think it is or many christians yes. who believe exactly what i'm talking about the other thing though is that they say well that's just far too vague of a definition like if you want to just talk about god as like the infinite beyond transcendental that i can't put my finger on then of course that's inescapable and i just want to say yeah that's why that's why you can't refuse it that's yes. why that's why this whole debate about whether god exists or not is a silly debate Go have a smoothie next time someone has that debate. I mean, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to engage in um, uh, arguments for the existence of God because God is not a thing that I can that I can conjure up in that way. This, exactly. by the way, when you talk about Thomas Aquinas had the five uh, arguments for the existence of God, 
he's he's more talking about what I'm talking about. He's not really arguing them as though they're like these constructive points of like, here's how you combat an atheist. He's saying whatever God is must be infinite. And what is infinite? We don't know. Because all we <laughs> yeah. know is finite. That's right. So the, we, infinite, we can have infinite as a concept, but I don't actually have a grasp on that. And he always ends, and those things we call God. So he's just basically yes. making a framework, which I think is entirely correct to say, God cannot be domesticated. Yeah. God has to be beyond this. The mystery in he's Christianity. He's not a tame lion. Yeah, he's not a tame lion. The mystery in Christianity is then he is he is incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. So the only reason I can talk about God is because he's brought God to me a human. in in the human person. So he's revealed himself to me. God spoke first. That's the Christian movement. That's the place that we always mm. need to come to. Now, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, that $5 word, asymptotic. Yes. Is atheism asymptotic? I, it sounds like what we were in, saying in about Nietzsche to some degree would say, no, there is an end to to this path of modernity of atheism, and it leads to mm. looking in the... In many ways, yeah, I guess it is, because you're... you're, you're but, here, well, but here's the difference. Okay. Here's the difference. And this actually, it's a good question because this is actually crucial to maybe the framework of what I'm trying to say and why religion matters and why atheism can't ground itself is because asymptotic even still requires that there is an endpoint and an apex to which it is reaching. The moment, the reason why there is a sort of religious component to making sense of the world is because certainly in the Christian framework is we are saying there is an end game. There's a teleology. Once we remove the telos, which is what atheism does, it no longer has some place to reach. It's not asymptotic because it's not reaching towards an apex. It just is. It's just swimming mm. in the void. It's creating its own meaning in existentialism. This is the challenge that Nietzsche poses and says, yes. therefore, it's just the will to power. So if you have a teleology, it's just that. It's just that aim at absolute domination. Okay. But whatever your highest aim is, you have to invent it and it can only be given within the imminent frame with only in the material. There is no beyond this. Um, that destroys meaning. Mm -hmm. It does. And I, I hate to break that. Like I, I, the atheists have not been able to come up with, I think a good answer to that. But, but if you see where I'm going with that whole, if God is that beyond the infinite, the ineffable, um, then there is a sense in which a different sort of atheism coincides uniquely with Christianity in the sense that, or, or Judeo-Christian thinking, that is saying God has never been a thing for the Christian, a thing in the world. God has never been one other element within creation. Therefore, we're at home with a type of atheism all the time. We're at home with a sort of, because our theos can't be constructed in any sort of way. Mm. I have to rely on God to speak. Hence, we have the, the revelation that is scripture, and that's what it's claiming to be. Um, that's difficult for people to get their heads around, I'm sure, but, but there's, a, there's a sort of touch point there where atheism can find itself in this differently defined manner within the Christian faith and actually be quite helpful for us to keep in mind. So we're, as Christians... You know, that charge that the Romans made against the early Christians, that they're atheists, 
there is an element of that that is true. Yeah. Because the gods they were looking for were tangible gods who lived on Mount Olympus or wherever, um, or, you know, represented in an idol in a temple. We didn't have that. Our God was, again... Mm-hmm. It couldn't be represented. Right? Uh, it couldn't be represented. And and yet, on the, on the other hand, the, the atheism of our modern day um, uh, misses that, that, uh, that um, the teleology of the, the rejection of the, the material. No, I didn't say that right. It, you're right. It misses the teleology element in the sense that it doesn't see that by removing God, it doesn't have any actual aim other mm. than life in and of itself. And, and, and I'm just making the argument that that's completely insufficient, but also more so it's also classifying Christianity and other religions, but Christianity in particular, it's classifying it within that whole pantheon of former pagan beliefs, right? Mm. It's, it's it's putting Christianity within the category of you got Thor, Zeus, and then Jesus, and it's like the no. definitions just <laughs> do not fit. You don't understand what the. But well, also what I'm saying though is that I think many Christians fall prey to that because they don't recognize the depth to which this sort of other atheism is already a part of the Christian faith. Yeah, we don't believe in a God who is tangible. Okay, who is this? Is why the Jews never even said the word God. Yes. Hashem. You can't, you cannot say the name of God. You, you, right. You have to, uh, you know, you write it and you put a dash where the O is. You can't, this is the ineffable. Um, the idea that he would come in the person of Jesus is, is blasphemous. And this yeah. is what the Bible is trying to express. In a lot of ways, the, the Marvel cinematic universe makes that point when it's <laughs> representing, uh, it's Thor and, and all of those, yeah. uh, characters, not as gods, but as superheroes. And in a lot of ways, we can look back and say, even even as yeah. early Christians can say, you know, uh, Zeus and Apollo are not real gods. They are superheroes. Right. They are, yeah. they are like us, just more powerful. Which is funny, because doesn't Captain America at one part, he says, yes. he says, uh, there's only one God, man. And, and he doesn't dress like that. And he doesn't dress like that. <laughs> which I, And some people have pointed out to be like, how can he say that he knows like several? And the point is, is like, maybe they got this part right. But no, he doesn't. He knows superheroes. He doesn't know God. Right? Yes. God is God is the beyond. Um, I'll end on that. You had mentioned Peter Rollins before, and his yeah. Peter Rollins is one of these uh, kind of obscure theologians who's talked about this sort of thing before. He talks about he does a program called Atheism for Lent, which is interesting to look into, to say the least. It's more referring to the things I've been talking about here. Mm. Um, he does this cool experiment where I've uh, you put up on the screen G O D I S N O W H E R E all together. And the point is, is that when you're looking at it, it can read, God is nowhere, God is now here. And his point, and I like this, is that when we're talking about God, we are never referring to a thing I can point to and say, well, th- you know, just that. That's you, God. Th- by the way, just so no one's conf- confused, you can point to Jesus. <laughs> yes. Fully, 100%. As Christians, we believe that. But that's all tied up with the entire purpose of Christ being a human being lived, living a life who is still alive and active. But Not, even Jesus said, don't call me good. You know, God is good. Even right? so, On yeah. one sense, Jesus himself, though he's God is still pointing people to God. Yeah, you might himself. you might say, you know, you can say Jesus is the full revelation of God, but he is not exhaustive of the revelation of God. 
if that Ooh, that's right? good that is that is that's an important point and you whatever jesus is fully god fully man uh but as a man i've i've said this before he's a, not a principle he's a person mm. therefore he's not easily again you can't just point to him and say well this is what this is what jesus no jesus is the i am that i am embodied in human flesh so that's a that's a deeply theological um uh, that that's something that that requires a lot of unpacking and why theology there matters. The theology of the incarnation is hugely yeah. important, but that is part of part of the language we need to begin with. Is still this idea that that God in in Himself is not something we can locate yes. uh, within the within the objective material world. Can I try to just uh, again put the, put what we we're talking about in a in a helpful framework? Yeah. So. So there's the ancient pre-modern folks whose gods were more like superheroes who were just superhuman Yeah, they entities. were and they were they were ways of talking about things that already existed, yes. right? So they were yeah, so they were they were gods that existed. Yep. In in that sense. On the opposite extreme, you have atheists who'd say that there's whoops forgive me. On the opposite, who would say that say there's on the opposite end so I can cut to it. On the opposite end of things, you have uh, uh, someone uh, who would say that there is no God at all, that God does not exist. And then in between, we have us, as, I'm sorry, we have us as Christians who are saying that, that God d both exists and doesn't exist. That orthodox belief in who God is, is that yes, there is a God, but he's not a superhero and, but just because he's not a superhero mm -hmm. and uh, we can point to him and locate him doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. But on the other hand, just because uh, there is a God doesn't mean uh, that he is uh, uh, that doesn't mean that his um, um, transcendence mm -hmm. means that he he is nowhere. And so we're right. in some ways again a good Orthodox posi belief position is between atheism and pre-modern paganism. In a sense, yes. There is God, and, but he's not, a, he's not a superhero. And the solution to that, how we move through that, I think is bound to the word you just used, which is orthodox, not in the large O sense of being like an Eastern Orthodox person, but orthodox simply meaning right. Yes. Doxa meaning worship, not glorification, doxa. Right worship, that as Christians, part of the way we talk about God is worshiping God. We rather than trying to explain who God is, we revel in his mystery and glorify him as being beyond anything that we could contain. Mm. And in that, God speaks to us. The moment, right, to Rollins' point, the moment God is, is, is nowhere, he's now here. Yes. Right? Good, good, good point. Yes. Yes.